But what made me stay on the path and continue was when I put things on the balance and I asked myself, ultimately, does this still excite me? Does the end goal still ignite a passion in me? Am I still motivated to do these things? The answer was always yes. Mm. And it made it easier to continue. Mm. So have a barometer that allows you to check in and check in frequently with yourself. Mm-hmm. And if that changes at some point, it is not a failure. And you, you just decided that something else was meeting that balance better for you at that point mm. in your life. That's Dr. Bahuma Tatanji today on Behind the Microscope. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Bujan Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. We are so glad to have you with us today for our conversation with Dr. Bohuma Titanji, an infectious disease fellow at Emory University. Dr. Titanji earned her MD in Cameroon and then spent two years in general practice before moving to England to pursue graduate school. There, she earned her master's in tropical medicine and international health from the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and then went on to get a PhD in infectious diseases from University College London. She then completed residency training in internal medicine here at Emory before pursuing her infectious disease fellowship. Dr. Titanji has been a TED Talk speaker and was one of the BBC's 100 Women Changing the World in 2014 for her incredible work on advancing ethically sound research. Today, she shares her unique pathway to earning her MD-PhD, discusses why the physician-scientist pathway is so important and how it can be improved. Without further ado, it is our honor to welcome Dr. Bahuma Titanji. I think that from a very young age, I was very much exposed to science because my dad uh, is a scientist and my dad um, now is retired, but he was a molecular biologist and actually the founder of the first center for biotechnology in my home country of Cameroon. Mm. So we grew up, you know, either seeing him uh, bring his master's and PhD students uh, mm-hmm. home um, for like, you know, uh, review meetings and stuff or following him to the lab on a Saturday mm-hmm. morning and playing in the background while he checked in on an experiment or something. Mm-hmm. So I think that that exposure came from very early on. And sort of when I started uh, thinking about what I wanted to do in high school, it was very obvious to me that I was going to follow a, a career in science. So mm-hmm. graduating uh, from high school, I, I decided to uh, take the entrance exam into medical school because mm-hmm. in Cameroon, you go into medical school straight out of high school. Mm-hmm. It's intensely uh, competitive because there weren't that many medical schools at the time. And it was kind of understood that if you pass that competitive exam, no one said no, because, you know, it was 17,000 candidates for you know, a hundred spots. Wow. So I was fortunate. I passed the medical school exam and then I went to med school. And I think that the passion for caring for patients just kind of grew um, mm-hmm. very on, early on as I started to study medicine. Mm-hmm. So it, so was there thought to just go to do research? Like you said, your father, you know, was a, was a researcher. Was there thoughts of doing that and not doing the clinical practice side? Absolutely. I I think that, you know, when I at that crossroads, when I left high school Mm -hmm. and I applied to to go to medical school, I had to have a backup plan. Mm -hmm. So I also applied to just my undergraduate degree. And what my first choice was biochemistry and the second choice was mathematics. So Mm -hmm. if I hadn't gotten into medical school, I would have gone uh, into university to major in, in biochemistry and sub-major in math, you mm-hmm. know? So there was always a backup plan that still sort of in, involved uh, science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way, Cameroon doesn't have the traditional MD-PhD pathway, but mm-hmm. I somehow still found myself 
back to an MD PhD yeah. pathway, you know, so that tells you that, you know, the science and the research component was always very much part of yeah. what I found engaging. Yeah, that's amazing. So can you talk a little bit about your med school experience? And, and you said you grew into this love of caring for patients. And then how did you, how did the MD PhD process work for you? If there was not yeah. a formalized system for that? Yeah. So, um, because medical school was straight out of high school, you you basically did the first three years, which were structured sort of kind of like a pre-med um, okay. bachelor's degree. And then you had four clinical years. And uh, during the clinical years, I, you know, studying medicine in Cameroon, the disease conditions that you're most likely to encounter that cause the highest burden of suffering are infectious disease conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that was my internal medicine rotations kind of in the, in the mid two thousands where wards filled with people who had HIV. If you were doing a pediatric rotation, you had kids with malaria or kids with meningitis or a pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And it became very obvious to me that you know, infectious diseases was a subspecialty that if you had an infection, I could identify it and I could treat it. Right. You know, and a lot of it was connected to public health and social determinants of health and actual factors that if you modify, you can actually prevent disease from occurring in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that that aspect of it really engaged me. And I felt like, yeah, this is a specialty where I can't only help people, but I can also connect it to the social aspects of life. And if I'm interested in policy and advocacy, it really opens itself up to me, you know, uh, exploring these other aspects of things that I wanted now to to think about. Now, coming back to the question of how did that MD-PhD piece uh, come Mm -hmm. into play, when I finished my training in medicine in in Cameroon, you have to work in general practice before you can come back to do Hmm. any subspecialty training. Okay. So I worked as a general practice physician and that was a real waking up moment for me because I just felt like very limited in how much Hmm. impact I could actually create just because you have all of these skills as a young physician coming out But really, you cannot address the poverty. You cannot address the Mm -hmm. lack of research that you need to inform solutions to the problems. And, you know, at that point, I realized that I really wanted to have research be incorporated into my clinical practice to really give me an opportunity to think about the big picture. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was fortunate to get funding initially to do a master's. Uh, in international health at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And that opened another portal into me getting funding to do a PhD at UCL in virology, focusing on HIV uh, research. So really coming full circle and tying my love for research right back to the things that drive me about clinical practice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's amazing and all, and and really interesting to think about that this different route that you came to, you know, becoming a physician scientist and and your, how you came to appreciate the importance of the research and the um, uh, advocacy and things um, uh, after you, I mean, not that you didn't appreciate them before, but that you, you saw that the impact was super important when you were in general practice. Um, because I think a lot of us think, you know, that, that do the American MD PhD, that's like very streamlined that when you get to clinical practice, you feel like, oh, now I can help people and I, and not just be slogging away in the lab or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to hear you say kind of the other way around was that you saw things that you couldn't address as a general, uh, practitioner or internal medicine doctor that were bigger, that you needed different skill set kind of to approach. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I I think that, you know, it's a peculiar path getting to the same end goal, but it has its benefits in that by the time that you actually decide 
to do the PhD after you have qualified in your MD and actually had the opportunity to practice, right. you also have a very clear idea of what you want that PhD to be in. Right, true. And what you want to use that PhD for right. once you're, you're done with that training. It right. is longer, but I think that it, it just um, makes for a better foundation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes one of the criticisms that I have for the traditional MD-PhD pathway is that while some candidates come into it with a really clear idea of what they want to do their PhD in, I have also met MD-PhD candidates Absolutely. who just end up in a lab that, you know, and they, they are doing a project that they don't particularly like. And once they finish that PhD, they just never go back to it. And it's right. just because the decision of picking that project was necessary was not necessarily motivated by the things that tied in best yeah. to the clinical component of the training. Yeah, that's really well put. And it's interesting. I think there's some push to change the MD-PhD training structure so that now you do some clinical experience before you do your PhD so that you can contextualize what it is that you're you're doing. Yeah, and um, I, I think that that would be a fantastic change and, and an improvement to the pathway mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how was how was making that decision to to leave then practice and and then go back for more school? Because you know. It, it, <laughs> We, 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 I think all of us and probably a lot of people listen to this podcast are in school for a long time. So, so, so maybe it's not so hard to explain, but you know, you are going from like, okay, well, my career could be, I could be starting my career now yes. versus going back to school for, you know, at least a master's, but then on to a PhD. So what was that decision process like for you? Was that, was that difficult or was that you just felt like this is, this is the right thing to do. This is going to get me to where I can have the impact I want to. I, I think that it, it, I would say it was an easy decision hmm. uh, because I've been fortunate sort of at every step in my career to be really blessed with phenomenal mentors hmm. and people who have been always open to listen, listen to my ideas and allow me to actually, you know, tell them what my vision for my career is. And then at every stage have provided what I felt was, you know, very timely input that helped me navigate uh, some of the, the more challenging decisions. So I'll take an example for that decision to go ahead and apply for a PhD. Uh, when I finished my master's training in London, my mentor at that time, I remember going into his office and having this meeting with him where I was at a crossroads as to whether I wanted to go back into clinical practice and do my specialty training and complete that piece of, of my clinical training and go into practice or whether I wanted to do a PhD. And he asked me, what is it that you want to do with your career? And, you know, I gave this perfect pitch elevator speech of, you know, I want a career that bridges clinical practice with research and uh, informs policy and allows me to do advocacy with my science, you know, mm -hmm. very young, very bright eyed and, you know, kind of having the speech that I thought was perfect. And he just paused for a moment. And then he said, I hate to break it to you, but you need, you need a PhD. Mm. And because it, that was the question, do I do a PhD or do I not do a PhD? Right. And, and he said, it's easier for you to do it now before you go back to your clinical training, because it's going to be a lot harder to come back and do three, four years of PhD research once right. you've gone back and you've completed your clinical training. Hmm. But it's a lot easier to go back from the PhD and finish your clinical hmm. training. Interesting. You know, so... After that conversation, he was very encouraging and supportive and wrote me a phenomenal letter of recommendation that enabled me to get the scholarship that fully funded my PhD and the rest is history. And, you know, I went ahead and I did the PhD and mm -hmm. proceeded to complete the clinical training thereafter. Mm. Um, so I want to ask you, because I think that 
you talked about mentorship and I think that's something that comes up over and over when we ask like really successful people, you know, if you could point to one thing, what was it? And a lot of times it's these, it's our mentors that happen to give us the right advice at the exact pivot point in our careers. And so I want to ask you, how did you identify those mentors? What, you know, it was, was, did you get lucky? You know, some of us do, but also was there some sense that, um, that do you have some tips for how do you identify a mentor that, you know, is really going to care about your career development and not perhaps just their research or their grants or whatever? I, I think that at, at every stage, it's been slightly different in terms of how I, I have identified mentors in certain scenarios. It has been down to pure luck where, mm -hmm. you know, you were in an environment where the mentor that you were assigned to just happened to be this phenomenal person mm -hmm. who yeah. bought into your vision and really took up that mentorship role and the sponsorship role and supported you in, in, in sort of making sure that they facilitated you developing and, and, and achieving that, that vision. In instances where it didn't quite happen in the same way, I think I have had to be very proactive hmm. in sort of identifying people in my environment who maybe sometimes weren't directly connected to my project, but were people in whom I saw the qualities of the type of mentorship that I felt that I needed. Hmm. And this is, it's, this is what I would say to other people who may be at those phases in their careers is that, you know, you don't lose anything by reaching out to people. Mm. If you think that someone can be a good mentor for you for or someone to bounce ideas from, I always say, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. They could say no, but that's right. not the end of the world, right? You never know until you ask. Right. And I've been very successful with, with re reaching out and asking people. And you just find that, you know, there are very many generous people who are enthusiastic about encouraging other people who are interested in pursuing careers in science and are open to talk to talking to you about your careers and offering their advice on, on how you can think about things and, and navigate that hmm. career. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I think it takes a little bit of hearing that because I think a lot of us when we're young students feel intimidated by approaching people for mentorship. Um, but at least in my experience also, it's whenever I've asked, people have been more than happy to be, you know, helpful and involved, but it's, it's just, you know, that little bit of imposter syndrome that I think creeps into all of our minds that we are like, you know, why would this person want to help me? And yeah. so, that, yeah, you talk about the imposter syndrome. It just never goes away, regardless mm -hmm. of, of what phase you are <laughs> uh, in your career. And, and, you know, the thing is, you just have to accept that that's just part of being in academics is that mm. you are going to have a certain degree of imposter syndrome and, and you shouldn't let that stop you from reaching out to people and, and, and getting the help that you need uh, or, you know, discussing uh, uh, challenges that you might be facing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome advice. So can we talk a little bit about your PhD? What did you study and what was that experience like? That was also at UCL? Yes, my, my okay. PhD was at UCL. And uh, I, I was focusing on cell-to-cell um, -cell spread of, of HIV, essentially, which is um, modality of viral spread across a virological synapse. So some viruses hmm. are, are able uh, to spread directly from cell to cell. So essentially contact between cells um, and the utilization of viral proteins and proteins on the cell surface can form a synapse, essentially, like a stable junction across which viral particles can be uh, trans transmitted from one cell to another. And that is what is called cell-to-cell -cell spread mm, of, of a virus. And, and HIV can spread by that modality. Uh, the more traditional mechanism of, of HIV spread is cell-free spread of, of the virus, which essentially is you have uh, an infected cell, uh, the virus replicates within the cell, buds of the cell and releases variants. The variants are then transported by bodily fluids or in the bloodstream until they find other target cells bind mm. to them 
and then infect them. So cell-to-cell spread, because you have that direct contact between susceptible cells and you have that stable junction, tends, in the case of HIV, to give the virus um, an advantage in the sense that more virions can be transmitted Mm. from the infected cell into the uninfected cell. And the synapse also sort of uh, provides an additional advantage to the virus in the sense that if you have more viral particles being transmitted across the the synapse, then essentially the entry or the influx of virions into a newly infected cell can overwhelm the the effect of, say, an inhibitor, Mm. uh, an an ARV drug that is present within that cell. Interesting, interesting. So right at the time when I was starting my PhD, there had been uh, a, a publication from uh, David Baltimore's lab, the, mm-hmm. the Nobel Prize winner, one of his postdoctoral candidates had just uh, published a nature paper, which showed that um, cell-to-cell spread of HIV um, was a mode of spread that uh, provided a means of escape from a certain drug class of antiretrovirals, reverse transcriptase inhibitors. So I came into my PhD Uh, specifically looking at other drug classes uh, used to treat HIV and their impact on cell-to-cell spread of HIV because that particular piece of research that found that this mode of spread um, was uh, favorable for the virus when certain antiretrovirals were involved had not looked at all the different Mm. drug classes. So my PhD thesis was understanding the impact of protease inhibitors on cell-to-cell spread of HIV and other antiretroviral um, uh, drugs uh, like integrase inhibitors, and also looking at the impact of combinations of drugs on that mechanism of spread and looking at the impact of drug-resistant virus um, mutants on that mechanism of spread. Interesting. That's fascinating. Is there... uh, um... I don't know much about this process, but is there, are people looking at that cell to cell spread as a potential new druggable, like mode of transmission that, you know, is there a way to block that? Oh, yes. Actually, my PhD then (laughs) demonstrated that protease inhibitors were effective at blocking cell to cell spread as were combination (laughs) drugs. And, and, Essentially, it's uh, the advantage is mainly down uh, to the fact that you just have more viral particles mm. coming across the synapse. But if you have enough drugs and you have drugs in combination and drugs that act further downstream of the replication pathway of the virus, then you still get an effect that mm-hmm. essentially inhibits the, 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 the virus. However, there's still a lot of talk or, or, or kind of there's a lot of debate as to whether a cell-to-cell spread uh, might still contribute to uh, low levels of virus spread sort of in sanctuary sites hmm. like lymphoid organs where, uh, or, 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 or um, sites of the body where you may not have as good penetration of antiretroviral drugs, and if in some way this mechanism of spread m- contributes to seeding and maintaining the virus mm, reservoir. So there's a lot of debate around that, and uh, and I don't think that there is a clear answer as to how much it contributes to either the reservoir or uh, to low low level um, of of replication because it's just very difficult to say for instance tag a virus and track what's happening in the lymph nodes of right. of patients so this it's it's a lot harder to do that in vivo and understand right. how much this mechanism of spread is contributing uh, to uh, virus spread within the host yeah interesting um, so it sounds like this was like a, a, a probably pretty like basic bench, like wet lab work. Yes. Um, how was that transition coming from from clinical work to you know? I mean, it's a completely different skill set, right? And I don't know if you did research. Like, did you have experience doing that? I, obviously, you you knew what it looked like because your dad did that. But like, mm-hmm. did you have experience yourself doing it? Um, to that I had- point. I had limited experience, I would say, uh, because um, kind of during my medical training in in the final year of 
my medical training, one of the components to graduate was you had to do a project and write a thesis. And it mm. so happens that my medical school mentor was an immunologist and uh, <laughs> HIV immunologist. And the project that I worked on was in collaboration with um, the Global AIDS Project here at the CDC in Atlanta. Ah. And I got a grant actually that allowed me to come to Atlanta in 2006. I'm, I'm showing my age here. <laughs> but uh, I came to Atlanta in 2006 and I spent six months at, at GAP. And mm. I was essentially trained um, to do basic molecular uh, virology uh, drug resistant testing assays with the team at the CDC. That's amazing. And process clinical samples that I had obtained as part of this study uh, that was became my MD thesis from mm -hmm. Cameroon. So that was my first real exposure to a wet lab environment and getting mm -hmm. trained to do a sort of uh, uh, DNA extraction and do sequencing and analyzing a sequence and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, when I went on to do my master's, because I, the time when I was doing my master's thesis, I already knew that I wanted to do a PhD after the master's. And I had had that conversation with my, my mentor during the master's. I deliberately chose a project for my master's that again, was very wet lab, sort of basic uh, virology uh, project. And I was looking at the role of uh, the HIV gag gene in drug mm -hmm. resistance to antiretroviral therapies. And so again, had some molecular virology and, and lab, wet lab experience. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't completely green when I, when I started yeah. <laughs> my, my, my PhD, but I wouldn't say that I was comfortable either. I'd had bits mm -hmm. and pieces of, of uh, wet lab experience. So it was still mm -hmm. a very steep learning curve. Um, for the first year of the PhD, which was essentially just learning how to do tissue culture, learning how to grow virus and do cloning and just very basic skills that I would then go on to use um, mm -hmm. throughout my PhD. That's awesome. So how did you approach acquiring those skills? <laughs> just went for it. <laughs> well, I think, I think a, a healthy dose of humility mm -hmm. and um, also kind of just uh, making peace uh, with the fact that, you know, I did not know much and I was there to learn and, and just being open uh, uh, to asking questions and asking for help. Uh, when I encountered uh, uh, the challenges along the way, I was incredibly fortunate that at the time that I joined my PhD mentors lab, I uh, was surrounded by um, really excellent um, scientists uh, who had been, uh, she was a senior scientist for his group and had uh, was 10 years post her PhD and just really took me under her wing and, and did that initial training, like grunt work of sitting with me and watching me painfully like, mm -hmm. you know, count cells or, you know, right. that and, and, and training me uh, for the BSL-3 and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I owe an immense debt of, of gratitude to, to that person and the other mm -hmm. people in the lab, because in hindsight, I now realize how much patience that must have taken on their parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, but it's, um, I sometimes think about this when I'm as a medical student and my residents take so much time to teach me. I just, I think about it the same way that, you know, they are, they are themselves have all of this stuff to do. And then they're explaining to me like basic things, but, but that's really awesome. Um, so during this time, so you're doing all this, uh, work in the lab, uh, are you doing anything clinically? Very limited amount because um, in doing my PhD in the UK, I had funding for exactly three years in which to complete the PhD. Okay. And, and so there's very little wiggle room um, mm -hmm. for you to do much else. Um, right. It's a fully immersive um, experience. And uh, they, they would let you go into a fourth year if you really desperately needed it. But the goal is really to be getting people to, to complete their PhD in three years, three and a half years. So during that time, I didn't really have, um, say, clinical time as in 
going in and seeing patients and and being an active uh, clinician just because I did not have the time to do that. Right. But being in the division of infection and immunity at UCL, obviously you are embedded within uh, the medical school and there's a variety of medical conferences and opportunities mm-hmm. to sort of stay engaged uh, with, with the clinical side. And a lot of the research that we did sort of in the virology department that um, I was doing my PhD in was very much uh, related to human disease. So obviously mm-hmm. at the interface of basic science and, and, and medicine, very translational. So right. that's sort of how I, I made sure that I, I kept in touch with what was happening on the clinical side and didn't completely just lose myself, um, yeah. as I call it, in, on, at the bench. <laughs> right. Well, but it's also interesting. I wonder, what are your thoughts on, um, I want to talk about on-ramps for people who, you know, I, I think we kind of talked about there's some there's some benefits and there's some struggles of, of picking a streamlined MD-PhD program that you go all the way through mm-hmm. because, and also you're, you're picking this career path when you're 21, 22, 23 years old. And you're, you know, you can't even imagine your first faculty position will be when you're 39 or whatever. Yep. Right. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, um, obviously we need more physician scientists than we are just training as MD PhDs. Even if all those MD PhDs go on to be physician scientists, the, the way we traditionally train MD PhDs, we need, we need more people who are kind of finish their clinical training and then decide they want to do research. Mm-hmm. You obviously took that extra step and went and did a PhD. Um, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on how approachable are those pathways for people who start with the MD degree and then go into research and also what thoughts you have on how we can make that more approachable because, you know, there's also, there's also debt and, and things that play into all of these things that makes it a really complex question. Um, but, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because obviously you took this, this path in a, in a different way, but maybe a way that gave you a little bit more perspective. Um, Yeah. I, I think you bring up some, some incredibly excellent points and, and, the way in which it's structured currently definitely needs to change if we're going to retain people on the path and mm. if we're going to to actually feed uh, the need in that pipeline. And the way it's structured currently, certainly not the best setup for MD-PhDs, physician scientists to, to remain a viable um, career path. Now, mm-hmm. talking about people who do sort of the traditional MD and providing ways in which um, they can actually come back into this mm-hmm. pathway. I think there are some centers that have done this quite successfully. I'll take the example of a UCLA that has something that they call the STAR program, uh, during which um, people actually are able to build in a PhD into hmm. their residency. So these are MDs who've gone the traditional MD path and then they do a residency and then during residency, they can decide that they want to do a PhD hmm. and they take three years and they do that PhD and then, uh, or, or they do that either during residency or they do it during fellowship, mm-hmm. but it's essentially built into their clinical training. So if you look at it, it kind of mimics what I had, which was right. essentially two years of clinical practice, taking a break, doing the PhD and then coming back into clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And that particular program is fully funded. So again, it takes out the debt uh, component and it essentially sets up the trainees who go through that path, uh, kind of streamlines them towards um, uh, an early uh, career development grant pathway. So Mm -hmm. a lot of them at the time that they're coming out of fellowship and they've just done that PhD, they're really incredibly well positioned uh, to apply for a KO8 or yeah. K23 or a KO1 and then transition uh, into faculty, which mm-hmm. is a lot more challenging for the traditional MD-PhD who does the, the, the PhD and then goes back and is a resident. And even if they go into fellowship and they want to come back and, and you know, be a physician scientist, they still have to essentially build in a postdoc into their right. fellowship training right. to get papers that are not dated 
as Mm. far back as their PhD to be competitive candidates to then go ahead and position themselves to those grants. So that is one of the ways in which you can get around that and make it a lot more attractive Mm -hmm. for people. The second way, I think, is really trying as much as possible to shorten the training uh, process. I personally don't think that you need five years to do a PhD. I think that you can streamline a PhD into three years. European countries have been able to successfully do that. I still think that a lot of the PhD programs in the U.S. are way too long, and there should be ways in which to restructure it so that Hmm. it can fit into uh, a three-year maximum three and a half year uh, uh, program Mm -hmm. so that people don't feel like they're stuck in training uh, forever. And then, of course, lastly, there has to be uh, some some sort of uh, incentive to make the time investment worth it. Like you said, you're getting that first job uh, (laughs) at the time when you're 38, 39, and your peers are kind of... uh, Associate professors, right? Or, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They bought, they bought homes, and they're a lot more established mm-hmm. than than you are. So there has to be something that tells you or tells me that, all right, I'm making this investment, but this is the trade off. I this is what I would get for this amount of time that I have invested on this path, and mm-hmm. and on, on unless it's they do that. You know, I think a lot of us come to that point towards the end of training, uh, like I am, where you ask yourself the question, is it really worth it uh, for me to now go slogging my way to getting a K and then hoping that I get my first R01, maybe when I'm 45? Right. You know, and I can't blame anyone who says, no, not worth it. I'm just going to be a clinician and not perceive it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they you know, I think that is, I think 44, 45 is the average for MD PhDs. And it's a little bit, it's one or two years later than a, a straight PhD mm-hmm. trained. Um, but that is, I mean, that's like midlife, you know, a lot of people mid career. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that I've heard there are, there's talk about how can you shorten this training, particularly MD, PhD, you know, obviously the MD, some places are streamlining some of the the preclinical years, but you need that clinical experience and you need to be able to see patients and, and some of that stuff can't be shortened, but you mentioned the PhD is, is a little bit condensed in European countries. Mm -hmm. And certainly for a lot of MD, PhD programs, students find a way to do it in three years or four years, Mm -hmm. rarely MD, PhD students do five years. So so what is what what are your thoughts on on where some of that can be shortened in the American PhD because because you know some of these go to six, seven, eight, nine years and I, my mentors would say that that's never good for the student to be like you said stuck in training for that long. So what is what is going on in those circumstances well, and are there I think I think that a lot of what's driving that is free labor that's cheap. Mm. That's just mm. the honest truth is that um the American PhDs and I'm talking about the traditional PhDs lots of times PhD candidates have other commitments tied to their PhD that do not necessarily have anything directly to do with the project that the PhD is based on. So they're expected to do teaching. They're expected to do other things as as part of that PhD journey. And they're being paid, let's face it, very little. It's not not a huge wage. And essentially, they are providing what I call free labor or cheap labor to, to universities. When I did my PhD in London, I did not have to teach any courses. Mm. Uh, you know, I I literally took the courses that I needed for the project that I was doing. And my days were spent doing my experiments. And I met with my mentors. And when my uh, PhD uh, advisors felt that I had enough to write a thesis, they said, you're ready and you can stop your lab work and you can start writing. Yeah. It was right. that streamlined. So it basically cut all, off all of the add-ons that yeah. 
prolong and extend the American PhD. And I think it would take a willingness on the parts of institutions to let go of that free labor and really mm-hmm. say, you know, in the UK, you have, um, and I'm using the example of the UK because obviously that's a setting that I'm familiar right. with for a PhD perspective. But you do the first 18 months of your PhD and you have something essentially that they call an upgrade which is a midpoint sort of eval where independent uh, researchers who are not linked to your project see what your results are at that point and where your hmm. project is going and give you input from an outsider's perspective. That's amazing. And essentially, that upgrade is supposed to tell you, is this, PhD, is this project going to give you a PhD or not? Yeah, that's so really valuable. And it's it's that point where they essentially you have the opportunity to course correct and if it's if you're going off the off rails they can put you back on track and tell mm-hmm. you this is these are some suggestions and things you should do to be able to complete this phd um in um in the next 18 months or if they get a sense that you really are not making enough progress you also have the opportunity at that juncture uh, to maybe get go for an MPhil with that project, which is kind mm-hmm. of more for research masters, then go ahead and complete the PhD. Mm-hmm. So you don't like abandon the PhD and get nothing out of it, but you still get a degree. It's just not a PhD, right. but they're not going to prolong the process unnecessarily just to try and get you a PhD at all costs. Yeah. So there are sort of ways um, around it to make this process a lot more streamlined but again, like I said, the institutions have to to do the buy work in. and and yeah, they have to buy in and be willing to to be okay with people finishing their PhD in three or four years maximum. Yeah, yeah. and and make sure and and have these checks and balances that are really robust. You know, I think they're built into graduate programs, but mm-hmm. it's up to the graduate program, and some graduate programs are really good about it. You know, I know my program was very supportive and checking in and making sure that you're not getting lost in the system, right? Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, that's that is something really interesting, and and um, I can unpack that for a while because I think uh, that kind of plays into the next thing, which is that that you know, particularly for MD PhDs, our train you know the training is so long. You said that it's important to for there to be an incentive to do these two degrees and to get these two different skills and learn these two different languages. And right now, probably there is an inverse financial incentive for a lot of subspecialties, right? Um, so how do you think that we or you know the system can incentivize that? Yeah, um, I think that there there there's sort of ways in which. Uh, the system can can do better to sort of get trainees to to buy in. And I'm coming from a specialty that is traditionally one of the lower remunerated specialties. So again, I'm like, (laughs) you know, doing this extensive uh, training and then going into ID. Oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? You know, (laughs) but I I, I think that the the best like things thinking about ways um, in which you can encourage people to to go into the specialties things like loan repayment uh mm-hmm. programs you know waiving uh, uh uh loans for people who do this training and then decide that hey i'm going to go ahead and be an id doc or i'm going to be a public health expert or right. i'm going to be one of those specialties that traditionally doesn't make a lot of money but if you say that and then you know that at the end of this training, my debt is going to be erased. Right. Then it starts looking like a viable uh, yeah. pathway, and and people at least feel like I can do what I love without necessarily carrying a huge burden of of debt, as well mm-hmm. as losing a whole lot of time uh, trying to do that thing um, that I love. I think, you know, the sooner. Uh, people who are serious about strengthening the pipeline and really ensuring that they make MD, PhDs and physician scientist pathways appealing to people, recognize that it comes down to the financial burden of it and doing more to ease that financial burden, 
we are going to keep having this conversation 10 years from now. You know, they really have to put the money where the trainees are and and really make this worth our while uh, to make that sacrifice. In my case, it was a little bit easier for me to, to make that choice, I must say, because I was, I've been very fortunate to have uh, scholarships and a free ride through medical school, through all my postgraduate training. I've always been fortunate to have a scholarship that paid for everything. So I came into my postgraduate clinical training debt-free. And that Mm -hmm. gave me freedom that many do not have to really pick the right. specialty that that engaged me best. Now, if I had a 200K debt, I might be a cardiologist. You never right. know, you know? Right. And- <laughs> right. So- yeah, well, and I think, you know, I think that has been the thought process behind funding the MD-PhD, like the traditional pathway that, you know, they pay for medical school and they give you a stipend so that you can leave med school without all of this debt and actually not feel that financial pressure. Um, and you know, some programs are giving incentives to their research fellows. They're like giving them more money to keep them from moonlighting and to get them in the lab. And so there are things, but, you know, I think a lot of them, unfortunately are geared towards the classical MD PhD students and not, we haven't figured out, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that we've really tapped this resource of people that finish their MD maybe they're 25, 26 years old, and then decide they want to do research where they're really passionate about research. We have to figure out, like you said, a financially feasible way for them to have an on-ramp into the physician scientist career. It's called protected research time. And that protected research time has to be fully funded. That's mm-hmm. that's the answer right there. Um, you cannot strengthen the pipeline without investment. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't happen by magic. Uh, people right. have lives to live. People have responsibilities as they kind of progress um, in training. And that's a reality that, you know, um, institutions have to recognize, including yeah. the NIH, you know, so they really have to put the money where it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. So, so you finish your PhD and then where do you go from there? What's the next step for you? Yeah. So um, the PhD, again, I finished the PhD and then I find myself at another crossroads, right? Um, Where I finished the PhD and I've been out of clinical practice for three and a half years and there's some inertia. I'm again, wondering, do I want to go ahead and commit to another four to six years of, of training, or do I now just like say, Hey, I'm done with training, go do a postdoc and then just use my MD and my, the PhD training and, and work with that. And I again, have a conversation with another mentor Mm -hmm. about, about what to do. And uh, it so happens that my, my PhD advisor, my primary PhD advisor was also MD PhD and mm. had done his MD PhD also in a non-traditional manner, but he did his PhD first and then did his MD after his PhD and mm. then combined both. So I had this conversation with him as to do I go ahead and do a postdoc or do you think it's worth me going back and doing this clinical training and getting board certified in infectious diseases? And he said, from his experience, going ahead and finishing that clinical training is absolutely essential Hmm. to give you um, a rounded, sort of rounded training as a true physician scientist. He said, without that postgraduate clinical training, you would always feel like there was a component of your clinical training that was missing. Hmm. And you've already done the difficult piece, which is taking out time and doing the PhD. So I don't think that you should be hesitant about going ahead and finishing the clinical uh, training. Uh, so again, it, it, it kind of consolidated in my mind. And, you know, I think at the end of the PhD, I also really missed clinical practice. And, you know, it, 
it it reminded me that you know as much as i loved research the goal was always combining that mm. with with clinical practice as opposed to just research on its on its own yeah so uh, i had to make a decision whether i did that clinical training in the uk or i did that in the us and it just happened that uh, the process for the clinical training is a little bit more streamlined in the us and actually mm. shorter uh, really? for, for yes, it's a lot shorter in the US than it is um, in the UK. So in the in the last year of my PhD, I took my US MLE <laughs> exams. Mm. And um, just at the time when I was defending uh, my my PhD thesis, I defended my PhD thesis at the beginning of 2015 and then uh, used the summer of 2015 and fall of 2015 to interview for residency mm. positions in in the US and uh, was fortunate enough to to match at Emory and started residency in um, July of uh, 2016. Amazing. Uh, so um, so and you had to take you had to take all the US MLEs like the one one and two. <clears throat> I took one, two and three, actually. Um, oh, you did before yes. residency, before residency. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, you know, I've taken them very spaced out and I can't imagine, sorry, my dog. Um, so, uh, so what was that then? Talk a little bit about that process of coming back to the clinic. Cause, cause, you know, I did the traditional, um, where I did preclinical years and then I did my PhD for four years and came back to the clinic as an M3. So I had no, no clinical experience, which was, you know, good and bad, but also had no responsibility. Um, and for me, it was terrifying to come back after that much time. And I just, I, you know, I didn't have had any pr- practice speaking with patients and doing all that stuff. Obviously you had spent time in practice, but what was that experience like coming back after being in the lab and then coming back and being, you know, an intern? Yeah, it, I would say it was, it was actually um, a little bit daunting and and the reason why I think the the fear maybe fear is not the the right word. Let me say maybe um, the anxiety I had about coming back uh, to clinical practice wasn't so much uh, driven by the fact that I was worried about not having any clinical experience at all because I did work basically right. as an attending for two years right. in, in Cameroon at an insanely high volume hmm. hospital and got really robust um, exposure and experience handling yeah. things that I, I believe, quite frankly, at that level were above my pay grade. Yeah. So I, I did have that sort of clinical experience in the bank. I think that the fear for me was more sort of adjusting into a different system of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, up to that point, all of my clinical experience, my real clinical experience had been in Cameroon, in -hmm. a Cameroonian setting. And I was going to transition to this United States setting after having had essentially what was a three, four year gap of doing lab work. Mm -hmm. And, And it was going to be a combination of adjusting to a new continent, adjusting to a new clinical environment, and then also at the same time, knocking up the rust of right. being a practicing uh, a clinician. Right. And, and, and I think that, you know, when, and I'm, I, I, this comes from the perspective of being an international medical graduate, when you come into the United States medical system as an international medical graduate, for most of us, our medical schools are not exactly places that people know. They're not schools that people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And people are not familiar with the type of training and the type of exposure that you have. So whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're always walking into a program with this huge question mark behind your back, even though they have taken the gamble per se. Mm-hmm. of opening the door and letting you in. So you feel like there's always this bar of having to prove yourself and proving yeah. that you guys didn't make a mistake. I actually belong and 
I can perform at the highest level. Yeah. So that was more the anxiety that I carried with me mm-hmm. uh, into residency and into into intern year. And you know, once I once intern year started, it's it's weird to say this, but I think that once you've had that clinical experience, it almost becomes like riding a bike when you get mm-hmm. back on the really? road and you start seeing patients it comes back to you and mm. and and you get you, you get the flow of things and you know you you have um it 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 just comes back to you and i was fortunate to have a great co-residents and um emory's residency program is a really good program with mm-hmm. a very supportive environment and uh that it's, itself was was very helpful Mm-hmm. But I, I do have an anecdote just to kind of uh, uh, sort of give you a picture of kind of one of my first weeks on, as an intern. I was on my first medicine rotation at Grady, and this was literally the second week of, of internship. And my resident was off on a Saturday. You're, and, okay. and so it was me and my co-intern and the attending was going to come in at 11 p.m., 11 a.m. and do rounds with us. Mm-hmm. And one of my patients had angioedema from her ACE2 inhibitor. Okay. And they called me because she was having tongue swelling and, you know, um, all the symptoms of, of angioedema on, on the floor. So I paged ICU. I gave her some... Uh, 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 steroids and I started the, the protocol. Essentially, I paged ENT and had her transferred to ICU and ENT came and scoped her before I called my attending. Mm-hmm. And so I called my attending and I tell him, patient X had this incident and I've done yeah. this, 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 and this. And he's like, okay, I'm coming right in. And he comes in uh, shortly after and after the whole event passed and the patient was settled and eventually did well, he called me for a debrief and he said, you're not an intern. <laughs> so <laughs> basically, he's like, so what, what's the deal? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, no exactly. intern in July. Right. right. <laughs> like, like something is fishy here. There something is no is way. <laughs> There's no way an intern in the second week of July is this calm about yeah. a patient with angioedema and just like does all of this stuff. Right. Uh, okay. With, Good. Without panicking. Yeah. That is, that is very reassuring because as someone who is hopefully going to be an intern starting in July, when you're telling this story, I am getting, you know, I can feel my blood pressure going up. So that's awesome. And that's probably, you know, that's what you wanted to hear, right? It's like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm and, back. And, Yes. And I felt like, okay, I still got it. And, you know, it didn't even occur to me. And I guess that brings back uh, to this wasn't me trying to show off. This was just me. Right. This was just the physician in me. Right. Dealing with a crisis and then, okay, telling my boss later, like I had a patient on the wards who had an issue and my resident was off. So I did what I needed to do. And then I let my boss know when I felt that the patient was in a safe environment and it was later on that I understood that the July intern would be running helter skelter all over the hospital yeah. and basically like panic in, in, a, in a mad, in a mad right. panic you know so yeah uh, yeah and that that was had been a bit of an unusual um reaction yeah. but it it was a huge sort of uh, reassuring episode for me which kind of told me that I still uh knew how to be a doctor and I think also it gave um, my team and my attending a glimpse into sort of my background and 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 kind of the wealth of experiences that I had had prior to coming to the United States and and, and right. in- integrating the system. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, so so you did so you did internal medicine residency and then onto infectious disease fellowship. Um, what was, it sounds like you had an interest in infectious disease, basically going back to the beginning of your career. Um, 
But what what were your goals as far as integrating then your research training and PhD training into how you approached fellowship or or how fellowship was structured? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, the versatility of ID of infectious diseases was something that I felt really lent lends itself into making it easy to integrate all the different training mm. that I had accumulated up until the point of, of, of fellowship and kind of starting into, into fellowship and thinking about how I was going to draw into all of these pieces that I had built up until this point was for me really the consolidation point of mm-hmm. the entire journey right it was it yeah. was where the the pieces of the puzzle started looking like an actual picture yeah i mean you know where where it wasn't just like abstract and this is what yeah. i want to do or this is what i hope to do but where i could actually see that all of this training is finally coming in together beautifully mm-hmm. into this specialty that ties everything that i've i've done so far into one sort of beautiful piece or neat piece. And I can explore my research side, uh, sort of in the research years of my fellowship, I can expand on my global health side by mm-hmm. connecting my global health interest to my research interest. And I can you know, develop the advocacy piece by mm-hmm. connecting the things that make me passionate about that research and that global health uh, question to the, the the issues that I want to advocate for. Yeah. And and that essentially has been what I have tried to do during fellowship. Mm-hmm. And I hope to continue to do when I, I transition uh, to become junior faculty. Yeah. I think that's a that's so well put, actually, that because it does feel like going through training, you are sort of putting a little bit of the puzzle together over here and over here, but it's like doesn't you, you know, it's hard to imagine how this is going to come together and synergize actually into the career that you want. So so I guess if you could, I know in the closing few minutes, can can you talk about what do you, you know, want your career to look like going forward now that now that, you know, you have you've gotten to a place where everything has sort of synergized and you and and you have kind of um uh, you know, a, a direction that, you know, you know, this is where I'm going. What do you want your career to look like going forward? I don't, I think the dream has not changed. I, I think that the, the things that made me passionate and committed to taking what essentially has been a 20 year journey since I went into the first year of medical school mm-hmm. is that same dream and that same passion has kind of been the enduring piece that has stayed with me mm-hmm. throughout and sort of yeah. facilitated me staying committed to this path. And, and what is that dream? That dream is really like seeing myself as a physician scientist who focuses on issues or questions of infectious disease, specifically my interest is viruses. HIV is one of them, but I'm Mm -hmm. also passionate about emerging viruses and neglected tropical diseases. But most importantly, not isolating my research. I want my research to be connected to the patient populations for which that research is relevant. And I think that my research only has impact if I'm able to, to use it to support and drive advocacy. And so the goal is still to make sure that at every stage of my career moving forward, these pieces move together. And all of it is centered on on hopefully uh, making a meaningful contribution uh, to improving human health in in my lifetime. That's amazing and, and so well put. I have one last question, and um, it is for those people who might be listening to this who are at the beginning of that 20-year journey, you know, what advice do you have for them? Um, I would say, you know, enjoy it. I think that that should really be what guides your perseverance throughout. 
I think that once, if the process stops being enjoyable, that should really be the point at which you ask yourself, is it really worth continuing on this path? And it's not a failure if at some point during that process, you realize that that path is not for you. I think that, you know, that's one of the things that we don't get told enough, sort of as very driven and, and um, very A-type personality individuals who come to this pathway. Right. You feel that once I've started, I must commit and I must see yeah. it through to the At end. At all costs. I, I, I always tell anyone that I peer mentor that it's not a failure if you change your mind. And your decision to continue and endure on a particular path should really be driven by, is this bringing you joy? Are you enjoying the process? And the balance, even in times of difficulty, should always weigh in, this path is still worth pursuing. And I can firmly say that, you know, for the last 20 years, I have had moments where it's been challenging. I've had moments where I've questioned whether this was what I wanted to do. But what made me stay on the path and continue was when I put things on the balance and I asked myself, ultimately, does this still excite me? Does the end goal still ignite a passion in me? am I still motivated to do these things? The answer was always yes. Mm. And it made it easier to continue. Mm. So have a barometer that allows you to check in and check in frequently with yourself. Mm -hmm. And if that changes at some point, it is not a failure. And you, you just decided that something else was meeting that balance better for you at that point mm. in your life. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for another episode. And we want to thank Dr. Tatanji so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, be sure to check out her faculty page in the show notes, and you can follow her on Twitter at Bohuma. That's at B-O-G-H-U-M-A. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have time, leave us a review. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson, and I'm Bijan Sadie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>